So prepare to be hated. That was the, the title of Bruce's sermon last week, for those of you who are here or who are uh, tuned in online. Prepare to be hated. And, and Bruce got that title from the words of Jesus. John 15, verses 18 through 19, Jesus says this. He says to his followers, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. These words really form the backdrop for our passage uh, that, that, that we're going to be looking at this morning. It's, it's hatred, hostility, persecution. That's how you hear this described elsewhere in the Bible. And in our passage today, Jesus gets even more specific about what this uh, will actually look like in the lives of his followers. Jump down to verse 2 of, of chapter 16. You have it on your handout there. If you're following along in your Bibles, please go there. Verse 2 of chapter 16, Jesus says this, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. So this is what hatred looks like in action, Jesus is saying. They will put you out of the synagogues, meaning uh, excommunicate you. Really the, the, the most profound form of communal rejection that a Jewish person could receive at this time. And some will actually want to kill you. Jesus is warning, and, and all the while thinking just tragically and ironically that they are serving God in doing that. We actually see this sort of thing in the book of Acts played out. These are very dark predictions that, that Jesus is making. This is sobering stuff to say on the night of his betrayal, the eve of his death to all these men who, who love him, who are really anxious at the thought of his departure. As we've seen throughout the last few chapters, their hearts are filled with grief, as our text is going to put it this morning. And that is why, beautifully, in, in our passage today, the chunk that we're going to be looking at, Jesus follows up these very dark predictions with I think what could only be called precious words of comfort. Look, look at what Jesus says on either side of this description of persecution right there, kind of framing it uh, like a sandwich. You've got this in 16.1, Jesus says, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. And then down in 16.4, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So Jesus is not saying all this really scary stuff about persecution to try to frighten his followers. He's not trying to say these things to just kind of blindside them with some really bad news before he then leaves them. No, the goal of Jesus here is encouragement. He's trying to, to keep his, his followers from falling away. He wants to sustain them in the persecution, not have them give in to it. His goal is to, to prepare them so they're not going to be blindsided by the hostility that is to come, but they're going to remember that Jesus predicted it, that it's not outside of his control, that in fact he's going to give them all these precious promises to hold on to and stand strong in the midst of it. What we have before us this morning is a passage of comfort. It's a passage of encouragement. In fact, not once in our entire passage today do we hear an imperative command 
come from the lips of, of Jesus. Not once does he uh, tell them something to do. This is not a passage where Jesus is trying to like tell his disciples to shape up or, or you know, tell them to do something. It's a passage where he is telling them what he is going to do for them, how he's going to take care of them, how Jesus himself will give them everything they need to weather the coming storm. But when the helper comes, that's the first verse of our passage. That's how he starts it all, verse 26 of chapter 15. But when the helper comes. He's just said all this scary stuff about persecution, then he says, but. This promise right here is the reason we can have hope even when we are hated. This promise right here, and everything he says about the Spirit following this, is, is, is why we can endure even while we are persecuted. This promise right here is the reason that we can have joy no matter how dark things may get, no matter how much hostility we have to face, no matter if, you know, this is Sunday morning before we know that, you know, Monday morning we're all going to be walking to the gallows together, because according to Jesus, we're not going to be doing any of this stuff alone. He is going to send us a helper the Holy Spirit. That's who that word helper there is, is referring to. It's actually the, um, the same word Jesus used back in chapter 14 to talk about the Holy Spirit, paraclete. You remember we, we, we went over that, this word that kind of includes these ideas of helper, comforter, uh, advocate, almost like an attorney or a personal representative who comes alongside you for believers. That's, that, 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 that's who the Spirit is. And what we read right here along with what we learned back in chapter 14, all of this combines to really give us the most detailed introduction to the person of the Holy Spirit that we find in the entire Bible. This, this, this passage here is chock full of pneumatology, as the theologians would put it, which basically means just information about the Spirit, who He is, what He does, how He functions in and for believers. So if, you know, if, if we're going to stand strong, in the face of persecution, this is the truth we need to know, Jesus is saying. This is what we need to cling to and, and, and cherish. And my guess is that the disciples were listening to Jesus with full attention uh, right now, just complete interest. Why? Because, you know, they were, they were distressed. They, they knew what was, what was coming for them. Jesus had just told them, and now grief fills their hearts. As, as our text puts it. But, you know, what about us? Do, do we know what's coming? Will we be ready for it? The, the whole point of this passage is, is, is for Jesus to strengthen his followers with knowledge and, and comfort and hope in advance of persecution so that when it does come, they're going to be ready for it, full of hope, full of power to stand strong and endure as faithful friends of Jesus. That's really the key right here. The comfort that Jesus gives is not, you know, that they're going to avoid suffering or not that, um, you know, Jesus is just going to magically blast away all of their antagonists every time someone mistreats them for being a follower of Jesus. No, the comfort is there in their suffering, even in their imprisonment, even under the point of death that Jesus is going to help them stay faithful, to endure in their faith through the suffering. Jesus will keep them from falling away. That's why he's saying these words. Jesus is going to bring them all the way home with, with words of praise on their lips because Jesus is sending them the helper. And I know that most of us right now, we're not experiencing any sort of real persecution. 
most of us aren't even experiencing much hostility, really, not, especially not on the scale that so many of our brothers and sisters uh, around the world are facing this very morning. But I, but I do know that some of us have faced hostility for our faith. In fact, I've talked with people from our church in just the last two weeks who have lost friends due to, to, due to their faith, who have endured some real antagonism and real consequences in their workplace for their decision to follow Jesus. This, this type of stuff is, is happening around us to, to lesser degrees. It's really hard. It's, it's really sad when it happens, and we may find ourselves facing more of this in the months uh, and years to come. And if, if we as, you know, church leaders, as, as teachers of the Bible here at FBC, have not prepared you for the possibility of facing persecution, then we have failed in our charge to give you the teachings of Jesus. We need to hear this today, all of us. A storm is coming, that's what Jesus says, but he will give us everything we need to get through it because he gives us the Spirit. So here is how the Spirit helps us. Verse 26, we're going to continue on. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I think one of the, the biggest dangers for people when they are facing persecution is that they will simply be scared into silence, uh, out of fear. It's really the goal of most persecution, right? It's to, to shut people up, to kind of get them to stop saying or, or acting in a way that threatens those who are in power. And if, and if you're a Christian, if you're going around all the time saying that Jesus is Lord and nobody else, that's always going to be heard as a threat to those who are in power. That's always going to be seen as uh, subversive, as, as challenging the status quo to say, no, that Jesus is Lord. There's another leader who's truly in charge of me and everything that I do, first and foremost. So what's going to keep you talking and keep saying that when you're getting a whole lot of pressure to then be silent? What's going to keep you proclaiming Jesus is Lord even if you're you know, on your way to, to prison or worse? Well, the answer Jesus gives here is not a what, but over and over again through this farewell discourse here, this section of John we're in, it's a who, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit empowers our witness. That's the first way that he helps us that we see. The first promise of this section right here says this in verse, uh, the end of 26 to 27, he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So I should point out that there's, there's kind of two levels to this empowerment for witness that, that we see right here. The, special, the, the first level would be a, a special empowerment for the apostles themselves, that, and then, you know, kind of secondarily for believers in general, because that is who the first you in this section here, when Jesus says, you also will bear witness, uh, in the immediate context, he's talking to the 11 uh, disciples, these, these guys who are actually in his, his presence right now, those who have been with me from the beginning, he says, meaning from, you know, the beginning of my ministry when I called you, been walking around with me from the last three years to now, you're going to bear witness from me, and the Spirit will empower you in a special way to do that. And trust me, these 11 disciples, you know, if you've read what, what comes in the story, you know they're, they're going to need that empowerment, right? 
I mean, this very night, every single one of these 11 guys, they're all going to abandon Jesus. They're going to leave him alone. Jesus says as much, straight up, further on in this chapter. You're all going to leave me alone. And that's because they're scared. They're, they're frightened. They're silent. Even denying Jesus three times, as, as Peter will do later this very night, because he can't take the intimidation you know, from a servant girl and a couple of people standing around a fire. So what's going to happen between now and what we see in the book of Acts that is going to transform these uh, scared and scattered disciples into the bold, undaunted witnesses that we see in a chapter like Acts chapter 5. These same men, I, I, I love this story. I remember teaching on it here several years ago when we did the book of Acts, but here's these men who have you know, already been beaten, already kicked out of the temple. They're already thrown into prison and they're threatened with much worse from the civic authorities who nevertheless stand straight up to these same men who've been punishing them like this and say, I'm sorry, we must obey God rather than men. And then they go straight back into the temple and keep preaching about Jesus. Wow. That is boldness. That's an empowered witness. So how does that transformation happen? How does he go from, you know, the Peter around the fire to the Peter who says that to the face of the high priest? The answer is the Holy Spirit, the helper. Jesus sends the Spirit, and just like that, immediately these men go rushing out into the street to proclaim the message of Jesus. You know, really what we see in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit comes at the day of Pentecost, it's a, it's a, it's a fulfillment of this promise right here, this promise that the Spirit's going to empower you for witness. What we also see right there in Acts chapter 2 is that this promise here, yes, it is especially for the apostles, that special empowerment, but secondarily, it's for all believers, for, for you and for me, because think about it, when the Spirit comes at Acts chapter 2, is, you know, the room is filled with, you know, these followers of Jesus who are together worshiping and praying and all that. Is it just the now 12 disciples who rush out into the street and begin proclaiming Jesus? No. The, the, the text is very clear. It's the whole assembly. Each one of them goes out there and begins uh, proclaiming this, this, this message of Jesus. We see this same um, idea of the, what you could call the egalitarian distribution of the Spirit, meaning that it goes to everybody. We see this all over the place in, in um, Paul's letters and, and in the letters of Peter, that this empowerment of the Holy Spirit is, is for all of us, all believers. We partake of one Spirit, the Spirit of truth, as Jesus calls him here, the spirit who is our, our testimony to the truth and empowers us to speak that truth to a world in desperate need of it. Yes, it can be very scary to talk about Jesus, especially when um, you know that you're going to receive some flack for it, that it's not always going to be, you know, well-received. It's to be expected, actually. You know, the promise here, it's not that it's not going to be intimidating uh, or, or frightening to share the message of Jesus. The, the promise is that even when it is hard and intimidating, even when you really would rather talk about just about anything else, that the Holy Spirit will give you what you need to have the courage to be a testimony and a witness to Jesus. Nevertheless, that is great comfort. Jump down to the second half of 16.4. Jesus continues... I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, 
the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. If you hear from, you know, persecuted Christians around the world, people who have endured this real kind of hostility and even violence for their faith, what they will often tell you is that one of the hardest things about it is feeling so alone. Even feeling forgotten in in many cases. There's a profound loneliness to uh, being a very distinct minority when the majority is oppressing you. This is one of the reasons Jesus gives this promise right here. He is sending us the Spirit. And if we have the Spirit, we are never alone because the Spirit mediates, serves as a vessel for the ministry of both Jesus and the Father. This is beautiful stuff that Jesus describes right here. And again, it's got to be so hard for the disciples to see this right now. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, Jesus says, meaning like, you know, when I was here, I didn't say any of these warnings about persecution and all that. It's kind of a sharp U-turn he's taking in terms of his overall teaching because I was the one who was bearing the brunt of the hostility, you know? I I was the leader of this group, so who were the authorities trying to arrest? They were trying to arrest me, not the disciples, Jesus is saying. The Jews wanted to stone Jesus, not all the rest of his followers when they were trying to do that. So now all of that is about to change, I'm going away. Jesus has said this over and over and over again in this speech. And now you are going to be the focal point of all the hatred against me. You will be the object of the world's hostility because you're going to be serving as my representatives. You're going to be taking over right where I left off, proclaiming the truth about God's kingdom, proclaiming my message to to all nations. And the disciples are very distressed about this. Again, sorrow has filled your heart. Jesus can see it on their faces. He can read it right there in in their hearts. He knows this is uh, distressing for them because they are afraid of being left all alone. That's all they can hear. That's all they can see in everything that Jesus is saying. It's just that Jesus is leaving them. That's, That's what they're focused on, his departure. But what they aren't seeing and what they absolutely need to see is that the point of Jesus's departure isn't who he'll be leaving, it is where he'll be going and then who he'll be sending. Those two things, the the, the, the terminus of Jesus' ascension, the end of it, to send the Spirit. This is why Jesus kind of uh, chides his followers there with, with, with that question, uh, or with that comment, yeah, none of you asks me, where are you going? Now, if, if you've been a careful reader of this section of John, you're like, wait a second, they have asked him that. Like, uh, three times they've, they've said, where are you going? Well, I think the key here is Jesus, you know, that's been a long time since they've asked that question. He puts this in the present tense. Yet none of you is asking me, is how you could translate that. None of you is asking me, present tense, where I am going, meaning right now. He doesn't say, none of you asked me, past tense, because they have but they have forgotten the importance about this with all the persecution talk. They've forgotten how this fits with what Jesus is trying to say about his coming ascension to the Father. And really, it has then pushed the point of Jesus' departure all the way out out of their minds. Jesus is saying, you're not focusing on the right thing right now. Because the whole point of Jesus' departure is to make things better for them, not worse. Verse seven, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage, to your, your benefit, your profit, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, 
I will send him to you. Some have called this verse right here, verse 7, just the nutshell summary of the farewell discourse, that you could take everything that Jesus says in these five chapters and kind of distill it into this one verse here as, as, as the gist of it. He's going away. He says this over and over again throughout these chapters, which is very sad, but actually be good, good because by going to the cross, by going to the tomb, by going to the Father in his ascension, Jesus will have made it possible to send us the Spirit of God, the helper. There's no greater gift than that. He couldn't do this with, without going away. You know, if, if Jesus didn't go to the cross, for example, we'd never be cleansed from our sin. We'd never be worthy vessels to serve as the home of God's Spirit. We couldn't do that if Jesus didn't go to the cross and, and pay for our sins and cleanse us with his blood. And if Jesus didn't go to the tomb and rise from the dead and conquer death, you know, we never would have this living advocate before the Father, enthroned at the right hand of God, the position of power from which he can then send us his Spirit to continue doing his work on earth, not just, you know, in one place and one person, which was going on when, when, when Jesus was here, but in multitudes of places, in uh, multitudes of, of, of people, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, in every generation, from Jesus until now, filled with God's Spirit to do God's work in the name and power of Jesus. This is, this is why it's to our advantage that Jesus goes to all of our advantage, because by going, Jesus can send us the Spirit. I mean, it's impossible as, as you, you read this section here uh, not to just marvel at, I guess what you could call the Trinitarian unity of all this, of, of, of the Godhead working together for our benefit, for our help. You know, it's not just like, okay, Jesus is leaving and now here comes the Spirit kind of as a second-rate substitute for actually having Jesus there in the flesh. No, as, as Jesus makes so clear uh, right here in this whole chapter and the chapter before it, through the presence of the Spirit, we have the ongoing presence of both Jesus and the Father with us. I will send him to you, Jesus says uh, twice in our passage here and in back in 1526. I will send him to you. So the Spirit is Jesus' ambassador, the representative of his presence. But at the same time, back in verse 26, Jesus makes this big point that he sends the Spirit from the Father. Jesus sends the Spirit from the Father, and in fact, the Spirit proceeds from the Father, is, is what he says, which could be a very, it's a very deep statement, but I think at its most basic level here, it just means that the Spirit does what Jesus does. He comes from the Father, just as Jesus makes very clear throughout this gospel that he comes from the Father, as, as the Father's representative. So, in essence, what you do, what you see when you put all the pieces together here is that if you have the Holy Spirit, You've got all three, each person of the Holy Trinity with you, supporting you, giving you strength in your time of need, no matter how lonely you feel when you are persecuted, no matter how alone you think you may be. God is with you, Jesus is saying, Father, Son, and Spirit, because he is with you in the person of the helper. It's an enormous comfort for people who may face hostility. Verse 8. And when he, that's the Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin 
and righteousness and judgment. Three categories. And then he uses some parallel construction here. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So far in the farewell discourse, all this talk about that Jesus has done about the helper and the help that he gives us, you could categorize it as primarily defensive. Okay, how he helps believers stand against uh, the onslaught of attacks we might be facing. How he shields us and helps us and guards us to, to stand strong. Well, right here, the tactics change. Here, we see the Spirit going on the offensive by exposing the crookedness of the world. This is how the Spirit helps us. And really, I, I think that this here, that idea of exposing, that's the best way of taking that word convict. Not, you know, convict, like make the world feel just really bad about something. You know, some, you can maybe have, maybe you ate the last of the ice cream last night before offering your wife a scoop and you feel really convicted about that this morning. That's not uh, what, what's talking about here. This is convict in the sense of expose or, or call out, kind of like in a courtroom sort of sense. Remember that word paraclete has this idea of like, an attorney? Well, this is kind of feels like a prosecuting attorney in this section. He is throwing this evidence down. He is exposing the failures of the world in each of these categories in regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment. And, and here's what I think could be the scary part of all this. The Spirit does this through us. Remember the function of, Je- of the Spirit that Jesus just highlighted here is to empower the followers of Jesus to serve as his witnesses, to, to strengthen his followers, to, to testify to the truth of Jesus in word and in, in, in action and, and in, in our lives. And when we do this, when we live a life of faithfulness to Jesus' truth, what happens is the world around us is called to task. The world is convicted like a, a defendant in court because by our upright lives, the values of this world are exposed as crooked, and bent. There's a scene um, at the beginning of C.S. Lewis's novel, Out of the Silent Planet, that I think really illustrates this well. I don't know, if you haven't read Out of the Silent Planet or the other two books in what's commonly called C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, you are, you are missing out on a treasure trove of great theological insight and truth and, and anthropological insight, what it means to be a human and, and all. I just absolutely love these books. So, Please, I, I hyped him up big time to my wife last year. Finally got her to read the third one. It lived up to the hype. So uh, I actually think we might have him in our church library. You can check it out. Anyways, in the first one of these, Out of the Silent Planet, the main character, whose name is Ransom, he's in this um, deserted country house on a cold autumn evening when he encounters an extraterrestrial being for the very first time, it appears to him as a beam of light, uh, vertical, like, like eight feet in length, just kind of in the middle of this room that he's, that he's in. And we find out later on through the course of the novel that what he has seen is actually an angel. But he doesn't know that yet. Uh, he just knows this is definitely something uh, that is a creature that is not of our world, okay? And as this guy is, is looking at this beam of light, he comes to realize that it's not perfectly vertical the way that he thought it was when he first looked at it, that in fact it's more like, it's like 10 degrees off, not straight 
up and down. And then the longer that he looks at it, he comes to an even more sickening realization that it's not the, the thing that's 10 degrees off. It's the world that's 10 degrees off. It's like he's actually seen true vertical for the very first time, and everything that he thought was upright in our world has now, in fact, been exposed as crooked and bent. This is, this is a horrifying realization for him. And this is actually how the Spirit empowers us as followers of Jesus to function as, as, as vertical beings in a world that's crooked, as, as upright beings in this world that has been bent by sin, as, as witnesses to this true standard of Jesus Christ that exposes everything else as slanted and skewed. This is who we are empowered to be. Concerning sin, our world has it wrong. You know, things that are, are good are, um, are labeled as bad. Many things that are bad are, are categorized and even celebrated as, as good because they do not believe in me, as Jesus puts it, which really is the sin behind every sin, a lack of belief in Jesus, a failure to accept him as, as the, the true revelation of God that he is. And then concerning righteousness, our world has it wrong. That word righteousness inc includes the idea of justice and, 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 and fairness, you know, two very big and powerful buzzwords in our, our, our culture right now. Yet, uh, according to Jesus, there is no true standard of rightness, righteousness, justice, apart from him. There's none. Jesus is the judge. He's the only one who sees all things clearly. And because Jesus is going to the Father and the world is going to see him no more, it is up to us, his followers, to now point to this standard, to show the world what true righteousness and, and justice looks like and to expose really the futility of trying to seek that apart from Jesus Christ. And then judgment, the third category in which Jesus says our world has it wrong. You know, I think the great lie of, of our age in particular is that judgment is a myth, that there is just uh, zero accountability for any of our actions beyond this life right here. And, and it's a tragedy to, to have that kind of thinking because it can result in two really harmful ways of thinking in opposite directions. The first would be that, well, if there's no judgment beyond this life, then I can get away with whatever I want. As long as I can do this without getting caught, then there are going to be zero consequences for me. Or as long as I can stifle or silence those people who I'm hurting or oppressing through this, who cares? No judgment. But then on the other side of it, the other wrong way of thinking is those who see the evil being done or the, the injustice that's happening think that it's up to us to punish people for it. That if there's going to be any vengeance for the wrongs done in, in this life, that it's got to be us who meet that vengeance out. That we have to be both judge and executioner in this life. Because if I don't do this, who will? Our job as followers of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, is to expose the confusion of our world concerning judgment for what it is, to show them that Jesus, uh, that through him, the ruler of this world, that would be Satan himself, the source of all evil, the source of all oppression, all injustice, that he himself is judged. 
present tense. And if he has not escaped judgment, what gives you any thought that you will escape God's judgment? This is what the Spirit exposes. This is how he goes on the offensive against the hostility of our world. And you know how he does it? He does it through the faithful, quiet, obedient lives of of regular Christians like you and me who are empowered by the Spirit to live as upright beings in a crooked world. That's it. You know, one of the most powerful ways that you can expose the ruined values of this world is to live your own life in happy, obedient subjection to the Lordship of Jesus. To do so is absolutely galling to the powers of darkness and potentially life-giving for your neighbors who see it. I mean, think about it. The most courageous way that you can um, call out a culture that is steeped in greed uh, and materialism, like we see all over the place around us, well, it's to practice in your own life giving, simplicity, generosity. That exposes the ruined values of our world. The most courageous way to call out a, a, a culture that is obsessed with sex is to practice purity, contentment, true self-giving love. The most courageous way to, to you know, call out a culture that is, uh, values autonomy and, and, and personal freedom and individualism above almost anything else is to engage in community, to engage in, in fellowship, to open your home in acts of hospitality. That exposes the ruined values of our world. The most courageous way to call out a culture that is obsessed with uh, judgmentalism and, and, and violence and mocking and, and shaming your enemies is to practice grace and mercy, forgiveness, kindness, even to those who persecute you, even to those who hate you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you is what Jesus calls us to do. And when you do that, you expose the ruined values of this world for what they are. And the Spirit will empower you to do this by helping you to walk as upright beings in a world that is crooked. Praise God for that. Now, verse 12, to the end of the passage, Jesus continues, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. You're not ready for this, Jesus is saying. I can see on your faces, you've taken about as much as you can. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he, the Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. So a fourth way that the Spirit brings us help when we are hated. The Spirit gives us the teachings of Jesus. Now, this is another one, I think, that has a, a, a two-level promise going on here. You've got level one to the guys in the room with Jesus, the apostles, his primary witnesses, and then level two to us. That would be the believers in this room and, and all followers of Jesus in general. When Jesus makes that promise where he says, I, he will guide you into all truth, 
What I think Jesus is promising there is the special revelatory gift that will be given to the apostles for the purpose of establishing the church and, and, and writing authoritative scripture. You know, just like Jesus received truth from the Father and then, and then passed it on through his teaching, so the, so the Spirit is now going to continue that process of passing along truth after Jesus is gone. He will not speak on his, authority, his own authority, meaning just solo, but whatever he hears from Jesus, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. See that transition there? All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. It's kind of like a truth supply chain that Jesus is describing here, right? You've got uh, the Father, who's the source of all truth, yet all that the Father has is mine, Jesus says. Then the Spirit takes that truth that belongs to Jesus and, and declares it to the you here, which is the apostles, who then have passed on that truth to us in the pages of our Bibles. Father, Son, Spirit, Apostles, us. That's kind of the, 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 the chain, the supply chain in here. That's how the truth of God gets from the Father to you. I, and I think, again, you know, we, we brought this up a few weeks ago when Jesus was talking about the role of the Spirit and how he's going to help the uh, apostles remember all the things that Jesus has said and then later write them down. Jesus is giving us great reasons to have confidence in the words we have in our Bibles. You know, Jesus promised the, the, the transmission of this truth from God. He promises it right here. Jesus authorized the transmission of this truth by giving the apostles this special gift. And then by the Spirit, Jesus has enabled the transmission of this truth to go out to the very ends of the earth, even to Tacoma, you know, 2020, where we teach this truth from God every Sunday right here when we, when, we, when we look at our Bibles. And this is truth that you can enjoy tomorrow morning from the comfort of your easy chair. This is a miracle. This is glorious help from Jesus. And none of this would po be possible without the Holy Spirit. This is how the Spirit helps us. He makes it certain that we receive the truth of Jesus. So when we are persecuted, we have something firm we can hold on to, even when everything else feels like it's falling apart. Praise God. One final way that the Spirit helps us in this passage, maybe this one's the most important of all, the Spirit helps us see the glory of Jesus. He will glorify me, Jesus says in verse 14. I love that just in those four words right there, what Jesus is, is, is declaring is really the most basic function of the Holy Spirit, which is to glorify the Son, to, to shine light on the greatness of Jesus, kind of like a, a flashlight, not to, you know, illuminate himself and draw attention to, to his greatness, but to turn our eyes to Jesus, always. That is the Spirit's job. This is how the, the Trinity really works. Each, each person of the Trinity is constantly bringing glory to another. You know, earlier in in John, Jesus made a big point that, hey, I don't seek my, my own glory, but the glory of him who sent him, the Father. So Jesus, you know, shines light on the Father. But then Jesus also makes the point that the Father glorifies the Son and is shining light, you know, on Jesus. And now we see this same glorification purpose is true of, of the Spirit, that the Spirit doesn't come to show us the glory of the Spirit or to make these big flashy shows of power and stuff. So now, wow, we're all really into the, the, the Holy Spirit now. No, in his, in his quiet and behind-the-scenes sort of way, the Spirit comes to show us primarily the glory of the one who sent him, Jesus. This is his 
fundamental, essential function in the lives of, belie- of believers, which is to glorify Jesus. You know, one Christian author um, I read compared the function of the Spirit in this way to, a, you know, a pair of eyeglasses. And as, as someone who wears glasses every single day, I find this, this comparison very compelling for how the Spirit works in our lives. Because most days, you know, I never think about my glasses. I put them on in the morning, I take them off at night. Don't usually think about them throughout the day. The only time I do think about them is if they're like dirty or got a scratch, you know, so they're not functioning in the way that they ought to. But nevertheless, even though, you know, I seldom am even conscious of my glasses being on my face, my glasses are in fact the unsung hero of some of the most powerful and precious moments of my entire life. Like, I was thinking about this, like, uh, you know, nine years ago, I was standing, like, on this very stage, and uh, my wife, Shauna, you know, then my fiance, she's coming walking down the aisle on our wedding day. I mean, you want to talk about, for me, an overwhelming experience. Many of you were here for this, uh, so you, you, you might remember I was just up there just totally ugly crying because it was so over, overwhelming for me. You know, here's the girl of my dreams. We had dated for like seven years before we got married, so she's, she's a, a young woman I had loved for a very long time, and now here she is. She's walking down the aisle in her wedding dress. She's got her arm in her dad. She looks absolutely stunning. I I just kept thinking to myself over and over again, this is really happening. This is really happening. And I was just absolutely overwhelmed. None of that precious, powerful moment would would have been possible without my glasses. (laughs) Right? I mean, these, you know, $30 Walmart specs were the unsung hero of that entire moment. I would have been up there. She would have been like a white blur at best. Maybe trying to see one of the grooms and probably would have needed to nudge me and be like, Nate, put away your phone. She's coming. Okay, okay. You know, something like that. But no, because I had my glasses, I could see the glory of the bride in in crystal clarity. And no, I was not conscious of my glasses at the time, not thinking of them in the slightest, but without them, none of that would have been possible. So you see how this works with Jesus and the Spirit? The Spirit is the lens through which we see the precious, powerful glory of the Son. And, and if any of you here has ever even just seen a glimpse of his greatness, even just a fraction of his power or his, his beauty, his grace, then it is because the Spirit was at work in your life, quietly, behind the scenes most likely, in a way you weren't even conscious of. In fact, based on the, you know, the role of the Spirit that we see in, in Scripture, you could say the Spirit is at his best when he isn't noticed. When all you're doing is thinking about Jesus, that is when the Spirit is working overtime in your life. So if you want to know what a Spirit-filled person looks like, it's a person who's obsessed with Jesus. If you want to know what a Spirit-filled church looks like, it's a church that puts Jesus at the center of everything, who wants to to learn from him and worship him and, and, and obey him and glorify him in every single way. That is what the Spirit does in the lives of God's people. The role of the Spirit is to glorify the Son so anytime that the Son is lifted up high and, and is worshipped, obeyed, adored, you can know the Spirit is at work big time. Praise God for His help. The greatest help that the Spirit can give anyone is to help them see the glory of Jesus. When you're facing persecution, when you're facing hardship, There is nothing that could be more powerful to sustain your faithfulness than looking at Jesus and seeing his glory. I love how the author of Hebrews puts this. He says, consider him, look at him, regard him. That's Jesus 
who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. The hostility we're going to see in the chapters to come in the book of John, which is just horrifying when you look at it. Look at that so that, when, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Weary, faint-hearted. That goes away when you look at Jesus. He's saying, when you're persecuted, look at him through the help of the Spirit and take heart. So yes, there's, there's a great chance that at some point we will be hated for following Jesus. The future could be difficult for many of us in this room. We don't know what the future may hold. God does. But we do know that Jesus has sent us a helper, the Spirit of God. So we can ask along with Paul, if God is for us, who can be against us? Take great comfort in that. Pray with me, please. Father, the truth in these words from your son Jesus is precious. It's powerful. Thank you. Thank you for equipping him to do the work that he has done for us, to make us into cleansed and worthy vessels for the Spirit. Thank you for empowering him to send the Spirit to us from you, your very Spirit who dwells within us, who empowers us, who strengthens us. What a precious gift he is, Lord. Thank you for him. And now by your spirit, we ask that you help us to glorify the Son in our worship right now and in the lives we live throughout this week. We pray this in his name, the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom all of this is possible. Amen.